Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. I'm joined by Dr. Richard Lee, a distinguished professor of psychology and director of the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Minnesota. Together, we will explore some of the candid stories featured in this season of Early Risers. Rich and I will also share useful insights into the often challenging but crucial task of discussing race and racism with young children. As a parent myself, I've learned the importance of intentionality in these conversations. My goal has always been for this podcast to serve as a helpful tool, supporting parents as they initiate these significant discussions about race and racism with the young children in their lives. Our first story comes from Ellen Gettler. Ellen is a married mother of two sons living in the Twin Cities. Ellen spoke with us about her experience as a white mother learning to talk about race with her children. She shared her understanding of how she was taught to intellectualize racism. So what are some of the questions that your boys ask you about race? Or do they? Do they even ask you questions about it? We did not talk about race when they were very little. We didn't know how to. We weren't in community where parents were having conversations about, you know, how do we do this? And so it probably started, you know, maybe three-ish years ago. And we've had all kinds of conversations over time. There have been all kinds of questions. What I will say about like how we experience that right now is that we and our family made a very conscious decision to enroll our kids in a school where we're one of just a handful of white families in the school. This was a very intentional decision that we made. The majority of students in our kids' school are African-American. And so as a result of being in a school where they have a lot of Black friends and are in classrooms with um, majority students of color, that is probably the primary vehicle for like what questions come up. It's really around lived experience and questions about classmates. Right. And that is intentional for us. It's the same way that my husband and I have sought out our growth around, you know, anti-racism and, you know, what I have now, what I'm now sort of considering like healing and liberation (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. is to find ways that we can do it in relationship. We have read a lot of books in our house. My kids often resist reading the books. And that might be because, you know, also until recently, a lot of the way that I talk to my kids about race has been really intellectualized because that's the skill that I carry. You know, that is how I grew up with an intellectualized understanding of race. And I think for a lot of white people, racism is something we understand with our brain, but we live out with our bodies. And I think collectively, it's a very new experience for us as white people to understand how racism and other systems of oppression live in our bodies and to develop a set of skills around listening to the signals we get in our bodies and understanding 
how those signals are like the scaffolding that kind of keeps the patterns of racism in place. There is so much packed into what Ellen just talked about. Um, first of all, I once again, I like the fact that her and her husband are being very intentional in many ways and are making some decisions that a lot of white parents have not done or would not do, um, mainly to actually place their children in a school where they are the minority. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a lot of intentionality and I'm sure a lot of thought that went behind that decision. And I strongly believe that, be- and because they are intentional and having conversations with their children, it's almost like a gift that they are giving their children uh, because their their boys are going to have an increased, not just understanding, like she said, from an intellectual point, but a true experience of what that feels like to be a minority, as well as a true experience of what it feels like to to truly live within another culture. So they're going to have an experience that probably a lot of their white peers are mm-hmm. not going to be are not going to have a, a much more rich experience. And the second thing is, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about this too. She talks about the difference between intellectualizing racism <coughs> and and how racism lives in our body, and that a lot of times um, uh, she says white people, but I'm going to say a lot of people don't really they 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 want to do the intellectual they talk about it intellectually but don't really recognize how it lives in our bodies for many reasons but in part because I'm sure because it's painful um when we really start to recognize um how racism lives in our bodies and how our bodies react so I'd love to hear your take mm-hmm. on that as well mm-hmm. yeah I, I was really impressed listening to how Ellen talked about what she and her husband have chosen to do in terms of enrolling their kids in a predominantly black school and also the comments that she made about, you know, wanting them to have much more of a relational experience around issues of race and racism. One thing that I would like to know more about if I had a conversation with Ellen and her family is how much is being processed within their family about their kids' experiences in these schools. You know, Mm. um, because one thing that we know is that, you know, kids have to do what their parents tell them to do. Yeah. (laughs) But we don't know necessarily what they're experiencing inside. Yeah, very true. And that's really important, Mm -hmm. just as it was when... You know, kids in inner cities were being bussed out into the suburbs in the seventies. Right. right. Mm. What was really important was that they could come back home and at least have a place where they could process those experiences. Absolutely. Because there was a lot of trauma that happened. A lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And if those kids didn't have a chance to process some of that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you know, not necessarily the situation here where maybe their kids are not experiencing trauma at school, but I'm sure there's a lot going in their heads. Yes. 
about how to negotiate and make sense out of these racial experiences. Absolutely. And so that's the part that I think would also be really important for this family to experience. It also got me wondering, what are the parents themselves doing in their own relationships? Mm. You know, and it goes to the the famous, you know, um, you know, exercise and diversity training where, you know, you separate the marbles by, mm-hmm. you know, who's in your inner circle, yeah. what color marbles yeah. are they, and, you know, the further you go out. Because I think it's also important for the kids to not just see diversity in their schools, but to see it within their own family circle of friends. And if Absolutely. they see a disconnect, what is that message communicating? Yeah. Right? Um, and that gets to sort of, you know, that's race and racism as a lived experience, right? It's Absolutely. not just an intellectual ac- ac- exercise that you're yeah, making a decision on for your children. Um, so. Oh, yeah, that's, that's deep. And I, I feel like I read somewhere that um, what really turns the tide for children in terms of how they see um, people of other races, especially for white children who see see people of other races and cultures, is if their parents or people that they look up to mm-hmm. have relationships with people of yeah. other races and cultures. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if they're, are they inviting them over to dinner? Do they go to, to church with them or mm-hmm. vacation with them or whatever? Because, you know, children pay attention to all of that. Yeah. Right. Even if they act like they don't, they really right. do pay attention to all right. of that. Yeah. You know, a lot of my work has been with uh, Korean children adopted into white families. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that many adoptive families have done over the years has been to have the kids attend a Korean culture camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a week or a two-week experience in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have play dates with other yeah. families who have adopted children from Korea as well. But a lot of times in talking with these adoptees as they've gotten older, they'll say, oh, I hated that time. Oh, I hated going to those camps. Really? And then you ask why and say, well, it was just like this one-off event. But then we return back to our white families, our white communities. We never have any conversations about these experiences. And in some ways what it can do is inadvertently make a child feel more othered. Right? Uh, That, oh, we're sending them off to do this, but it's not a part of our family. It's not a part of our everyday life. Right. Mm -hmm. And the families that sent their kids off but also incorporated the child's culture and racial experiences into the family, Mm -hmm. that was a different kind of experience. Mm. Right? Because a child is able to make much better sense out of those experiences. And so that's why I go back to the, you know, Ellen with her kids. Is she create? Is she doing something to integrate it into the the fabric of the family beyond just school? Yeah, I assume yeah. that there's some things that yeah. are happening, but that's the kind of thing that I think parents need to think about. Absolutely. Throughout this podcast, I have emphasized the importance of intentional conversations about race and racism, highlighting the need for all children to develop positive racial identities. 
I hope that these conversations, our episode guides, and the guidance from myself and Dr. Lee have provided you with helpful tools and insights as you move forward. Let's get back to this important conversation. Our next story comes from Kai and James Miller. They are a black married couple raising two daughters in Rochester, Minnesota. They discuss their guilt with choosing Rochester as their home in the face of their daughter's struggle with disliking her appearance and the impact living in Rochester has had on her and her sister. I'm glad you shared that story because there's a lot of parents that are going through very similar situations, but it's not something that we like to talk about because it it can be kind of painful. So like when your Mm -hmm. daughter said that, what did you think and feel in that moment? I wanted to cry. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I guess, like I said, it was heartbreaking and it made me feel like, am am I doing my children a disservice by being in a place that they don't see themselves? Like, should we move? Like, Mm -hmm. and we love it here in Rochester. Mm -hmm. Like we love the community, Mm -hmm. but are we doing our kids a disservice by being here? Right. You know, because they don't have anybody like them that they can connect with. You know, culturally, they're very separated. You know what I mean? I do. And so in a way, I still kind of feel that. Yeah. But you decided to stay. You haven't moved yet. Mm -mm. So kind of where are you with that? Do you feel settled in your decision to be in Rochester or are you still noticing things that cause you concern? No, not not noticing anything now that's any cause of concern. Good. Um I don't know. I mean, Rochester's a thriving community. It's like it it's is. like it's growing too, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say it's like mm-hmm. doubling in um in population, population. right now. Yeah. And yeah. uh hopefully more the diversity will yeah. pick up. That's what I'm hoping. One of the other things that kind of settled me in my decision to stay is the fact that, well, when she was feeling that way, we were living in a different place Mm -hmm. here in Rochester. Uh, But since we've moved into a new home in this community, there's more children here that look like us Mm -hmm. that they get to play with on a regular basis. And so it was like, huh, that feels a little bit better. Yeah. And it's like, so I don't want to necessarily pull them away. I I don't know. I just, we like it here. They Uh, like it here. They like it here too. (laughs) So this conversation with Kai and James actually hits me kind of personal too, because the conversation that Kai and James had with each other trying to figure out, should we stay in Rochester or should we go? Are we doing a disservice to our children? Sounds an awful lot like conversation my parents had when I was growing up in um, a suburb of St. Paul. And in fact, they did end up moving. Um, Not real far away, but we ended up moving to a suburb that was closer to the city so that that it was just a little bit more diverse. And I think the reason that they did that very, very similar situation to what Kai and James were talking about 
there were things that they were seeing in us, in me, that were not seeing kinds of people that look like us being reflected and that having a a real effect on how I was perceiving myself, how we as children, me and my brother, were perceiving ourselves. And so they did make that decision to to move a little closer to the city. And there's no right answer. You know, everyone, mm-hmm. every family will handle this situation a little differently. But just the fact that this family even has to have this conversation today is powerful to me but also tells me that they are they're dealing with some situations that families of color in predominantly white areas continue to deal with and having to make decisions around that yeah i agree with you listening to Kai and James have this conversation also brought even though it's a tough conversation that they're having it also brought some hope because they're aware of yeah. the choices that they've made, where to live, how it potentially may be impacting their children. Right. And they are having that conversation as a couple. Yes. You know, as partners. And so they're not holding anything in or holding anything back. Right. And they are coming to some mutual understanding um, and decisions on what to do. There are many families that don't have those conversations, Hmm. either because they don't have that awareness or only one person has that, one partner has that awareness. Or there are just simply too many other life demands that are put on them that make it very difficult for them to create that space and that time to breathe, yeah. reflect, share. Oh, that's so true. You know, and I, I think about immigrant families in particular mm-hmm. where, you know, they're just hustling to get to make it through. Every day. Every day. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and that, it's not just obviously immigrant families, but, you know, reflecting back on my own childhood growing up in a predominantly white uh, neighborhood in Connecticut you know, my parents moved there because they saw it as a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Better education system, safer yep, environment. Yep. Um, and I think the difference maybe from some other families sometimes is that in my situation, maybe in some ways like yours, Diane, pa- my parents were able to still create a Korean community. Mm-hmm. It's, it was just not immediate in our home environment. Yes. But they'd go to the Korean church. They'd Mm -hmm. find the Mm -hmm. Korean organizations. And so people created these spaces. It required more time, more distance Mm -hmm. to make it work. Um, But they did what they felt they could do. Yes. Did it always work? Did it, you know, sometimes, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sounds like Kai and James maybe came from an environment where things were there for them. Yeah. And now they're recognizing we don't have that for our kids. Yeah. So then the question is, what can they do to creatively create that sort of space and environment for their children? It might be moving out of Rochester. It might be, you know, moving like they did from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. Right. But it might be also creating other spaces. 
right? And it causes you to reflect on what type of friendships and relationships you have um, that are from similar or diverse cultural backgrounds so that your kids can see themselves in different spaces. I like that because um, I like what you're saying because the main thing, the important thing is being intentional and having this conversation and being able to recognize that this is an issue or a situation. But how are we as a family? What makes sense for us as a family to how are we going to respond to that? Yeah. Very important. Yeah. You know, I live in a predominantly white, you know, neighborhood now in Minneapolis. And, you know, my boys, their friends are almost all white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was a moment where, you know, we were talking about friendships and, you know, the diversity of the friendships or the Mm -hmm. lack of diversity Mm -hmm. of the friendships. And they just looked at us and they were like, well, mom, dad, look at where we live. (laughs) Look at the schools we go to. Like, yeah, you didn't give us a lot of options. here, (laughs) So we're figuring it out. You know, (laughs) I mean, they weren't saying it in those words, but basically that's what they were telling us. Yeah. Yeah, We're figuring it out. And they're very proud to be Korean American. They know they're Asian American, Mm -hmm. you know, and they do have friends who are racially diverse, but yeah. it's not, you know, what maybe we envisioned yeah. initially. Yeah. Right. Our final story comes from Acacia Ward. Acacia is a biracial single mom raising her son in Rochester, Minnesota. Acacia worries that she will not know how to answer her son's questions about race. When my son questions me about, like, color and race and differences I really as a mother like I question myself Hmm. I don't want to say the wrong thing I don't want to guide him wrong Mm -hmm. because young kids take words and they mix them up to whatever they want to have a perception of I guess Mm -hmm. I don't want to say the wrong thing that will make him spin it into what he You know, like, I don't know if that makes sense. So if I say it this way, will he take it how I mean it? Or will he take it and interpret it in another way? (laughs) I question myself when I'm about to respond to him because I don't want to say the wrong thing. You know, when Acacia is talking, it reminds me of um, a story I was talking to another parent about. And she said that, She, um, this was a white mom who really wanted to have a lot of multicultural resources for their children. And so they were reading books um, about the civil rights movement. And um, I don't remember exactly what the book was, but there may have been even more than one. And so, uh, you know, they have story time and she'd read these books. And uh, then... One day, her son said to her uh, something about, isn't, you know, aren't the black people supposed to be at the back of the bus? Mm -hmm. And so it was at that point she realized all they had really been doing was reading these books. They hadn't really been, like, processing them or discussing them. And, um, And so I think that's what I think about because what Acacia is really saying is, you know, Children are learning, you know, they're, they're especially very young children. This is their time to, you know, 
figure out the world around them and they're mm-hmm. categorizing things. And sometimes they do put things in categories that are not, you know, the right ones. And so our job is to make sure that they have the categories in, in the right places. And so, um, so I kind of hear what she's saying, but on the other hand, it's like, I'm glad that she's talking to her child. And I think a lot of times parents get anxious about talking about race because of our own issues. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, you know, this is a journey. We're not always mm-hmm. going to say the right thing all the time. And we can always go back mm-hmm. and um, do some repair or correction, you know, with children. We're always doing that. Um, so uh, I, I, I really appreciate her vulnerability talking about it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar thought as I was listening. And to me, it really struck me that like many parents, we question ourselves. And I think that questioning really gets at, we don't always feel very confident or competent yeah. about what we need to say. And a lot of that, to me, comes down to practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when I'm teaching undergraduate students, and a lot of them are interested in my courses because I teach about race and racism and I'll do an exercise Mm -hmm. and I'll say I'm going to give you some vignettes where you're going to read about a racist encounter I want you to come up with an effective immediate response to that moment but it cannot be I'd punch him or I'd cuss them out (laughs) and then I give them some time and I have them work on that activity And time and again, doesn't matter if it was something I did last year or 10 years ago, they all come back and say, that was really hard. Mm. Because typically, when people experience racism, when people hear others make comments that throw them off, we don't have an immediate response. We don't know how to handle it, whether it's our child or a friend, or a stranger, or a teacher. Yeah. We need to practice. And so I say to the students, and I would say to Acacia, it's okay, like you said, it's okay to get it wrong sometimes, but you Mm got to try. Right. You got to try. And eventually, over time, you'll get better. Yeah. It's like with anything, you get better. You get better. The more you do it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey through Early Risers, Parent Voices. We hope that the stories and insights shared have resonated with you, helping you realize that you are not alone in navigating the complexities of race and racism with your young children. Remember, these conversations are not always easy, but they are undeniably important. By addressing race and racism openly and honestly with our children, we can foster a more inclusive society for future generations. As we conclude this season, I encourage you to continue the dialogue, to seek support from your communities, and to approach these conversations with love, empathy, and a commitment to positive change. 
Thank you once again for joining us on this season of Early Risers. We will be back with new episodes. Until then, I wish you all the best in your journey to have positive conversations about race with young children. This special presentation of Early Risers was hosted by me, Diane Halsey, with special guest, Dr. Richard Lee. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our producers are Twyla Dang and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our social media manager is Katie DeSalle. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. To learn more about the Early Risers podcast, go to our website at npr.org backslash early risers or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at podcast early. As always, a special thank you to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you.